Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If civics is dead, what happens next? Welcome to Civics is Dead. I'm Cindy Schwartz. Deep into our second season, Boots on the Ground, we have validated the marginalization of social studies and civics education through our discussions thus far with educators and students who are in the trenches. Educators and students who have attested to the sidelining of social studies, American government, and civics education on the elementary, secondary, and college levels. But today's episode brings some good news. All is not dark. There is some light at the end of the social studies tunnel. And maybe, just maybe, happy days are here again. I recently interviewed Dr. Alan Singer, director of the secondary education program at Hofstra University in Hempstead, Long Island, New York, hoping to have him shed some light on not only the status of social studies and civics education in America today, but also to offer a path forward on how social studies, American government, and civics can become relevant again. How can we prepare future teachers to buck the tide and teach social studies, American government, and civics in an engaging fashion so that students not only remember information, but experience it and internalize it so that they can live it? Dr. Singer's commitment to the participatory teaching of social studies and civics has helped an immeasurable number of students and prospective teachers to successfully incorporate social studies and civics education into the classroom. His passion is contagious. So, let's give a listen to some of Dr. Singer's thoughts about the teaching of social studies in America today, what he believes are the roots of the problem, and how he believes social studies and civics education can and must become as relevant as the STEM subjects. We are fortunate to have Dr. Alan Singer here with us today. Dr. Singer serves as Director of Social Studies Education Programs at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, in addition to his position as Professor of Teaching, Learning, and Technology. Dr. Singer received his Ph.D. and M.A. from Rutgers University and his B.A. from CUNY City College in New York City. A former social studies high school teacher in New York City, editor of Social Science Docket, a joint publication of the New York and New Jersey Councils for the Social Studies, Dr. Singer has also authored numerous books on topics from slavery in New York, pre-Civil War, to teaching global history. The Long Island Conference for the Social Studies awarded Dr. Singer the Mark Rothman Teacher Mentoring Award for his commitment to students and continued excellence in education in 2011. An additional academic focus of Dr. Singer's scholarship has been the Great Irish Famine, clearly a decorated social studies veteran. Dr. Singer, we are honored to have you here today on Civics is Dead as we continue our conversation with teachers, students, administrators, and parents with boots on the ground, those who are at the forefront on today's educational scene. Our hope? to offer a balanced conversation about the future of social studies and civics education in the United States, and to uncover whether or not our democracy might be threatened 
by what studies have shown is a decrease of time spent, particularly at the elementary school level, on the teaching of social studies, American government, and civics. Again, thank you, Dr. Singer, for being here. Your thoughts are highly valued. Thank you very much for having me, Cindy. Um, Two quick things before we get into your questions. One, civics isn't dead. (laughs) What's happened, it has shifted from the classroom to the streets, and it's now being taught by teenagers like Greta Thunberg and her allies and, and Greta groupies around the world. And it's being taught by young people like Emma Gonzalez, who are active in the campaign against gun violence and for reason gun control. And so all over the United States, all over the world, civics is being taught. The only issue that I raise is it's going to be taught in the schools along with the kids out in the street or the kids just going to leave us behind because civics isn't dead. Civics is mobilizing for social change. Fantastic. Love the optimism, and I am there with you. Yes. All right. Civics is Dead title gets people to listen. (laughs) I I understand. (laughs) But absolutely wonderful, and you're right. So tell us, Dr. Singer, a little bit about you. Uh, We love to do a little bio and your early years, your college Mm -hmm. years, and why you chose this career path to be um, a man committed and driven to helping young people understand the history of our country and of the world. Tell us about that. Well, I grew up in a working class family in in the South Bronx, right by Yankee Stadium. I mean, a couple of minute walk to the stadium. So uh, we used to go a lot. Um, It used to cost 75 cents to sit in the bleachers. And so you you could spend the whole day there. Uh, I'm a product of both the civil rights era and the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement. Uh, and it, one of the main things I learned from both is that you have to connect struggle to people's lives. So I, I'm, I start City College in 1967, and it really is the height of the anti-war movement. And so what happens is uh, I become involved with a lot of the political activities. Activities. I was arrested at Whitehall Street in, 19, in December of 1967 uh, during the anti-war, anti-draft demonstrations. I was accused of uh, obstructing pedestrian traffic, which meant I was standing on the sidewalk, not doing anything. Case was dismissed. But uh, the police at the time would just do mass arrests as a way of dampening down people's demonstrations. Uh <clears throat> My father, when I was uh, 17, said to me, don't go to the demonstrations. If you get arrested, I'm not going to bail you out. But my mother came and got me out. This was very embarrassing. Everybody else was released on their own recognizance except for me. Because I was 17, I had to wait for my mother to get me out of of the lockup. Uh, The the just injustice of what happened to us convinced me that to— a life to be a life of activism, and I've remained an activist since. Um, in the fall of '68, there's tremendous debate at City College and the anti-war movement uh, between three different directions. One group, or the the yippies, were calling for drugs and dropping out. Another group uh, 
the weather underground believe we are on the verge of revolution. And the third group believed that we had to take the anti-war movement off the campuses out into communities. And that's the group that I went with. And I got involved with a community organizing group in the East New York section of Brooklyn. And uh, I basically was involved with them for the next 30 years as a community organizer. And first organizing to end the war in Vietnam, but also organizing on other social justice issues, because this was a, a pretty depressed community. So while I'm in college, um, my plan was to be a revolutionary and um, to change the world. And, and my father, who a working class guy, very practical, never went to college, barely finished high school, says to me, you know, you need a backup plan. And he suggested teaching as a backup plan. So as an undergraduate, I got my teaching certific uh, certification. I student taught in the middle school in the South Bronx. Um, and then I got it. It was hard to get a social studies job in 1971, but I got a, a free ride at Rutgers to study revolution. What they what we called history, but it was I I did my doctoral uh, research on radical coal miners in the 1920s, trying to understand what made them so radical. The town I was investigating, this was the only town and the only local that went on strike during World War II. I mean, that's how radical they were. They would not acquiesce to any government um, decision making. So, but while I was in graduate school, I was also a substitute teacher. After three years, I realized I liked teaching a lot better than dusty libraries. I'm working in the East New York community as a community organizer, so I got a job teaching at, at one of the local middle schools where I was working, but where also I was known. Unfortunately, in 1975, I got laid off when New York City went bankrupt. So, as an undergraduate, I had driven a, a cab in the city, and then as a, a graduate student, I had driven school buses for the community center. So, I just got jobs um, as a driver, as a truck driver, and later I actually drove for the New York City Transit Authority on the midnight shift in East New York. And that's those all, they have separate stories. 1978, I finally got called back to teaching. I got a job teaching high school in uh, Manhattan. And then, again, the city economy was uh, not, not great, so I got shifted back and forth. I got excess. And then I finally uh, landed at uh, Franklin K. Lane High School in, on the border of East New York, Brooklyn, and Queens, where we had the bulk of my career. Starting at Charles Evans Hughes High School in Manhattan, this was 1978, and there were... Um, severe budget cuts affecting the schools. I'm teaching economics, and one of the things we did is we began to look at the budget process. We looked at how much money the Board of Education said they needed, and then we looked at how much money the Board of Estimate was allocating, and we realized it was a very sharp difference. So I had students in my economics class uh, do presentations on the budget using OCTAG, because this is before PowerPoint, this is before computers. And uh, the students did a very impressive job comparing what was needed with what was allocated. So we decided to go to the Board of Education hearings, and they would present their findings. 
And then we went to the Board of Estimate hearing and they presented their findings. And they also were able to get local coverage in, in their local community newspapers on their events. And that was the start of what we called the Forum Club. And the Forum Club uh, were students originally my class, but now met independently as a student group to take up political issues. Over the next three years, the Forum Club grew as the city budget crisis grew worse. And in 1981, there were major threats. And the Forum Club became the student liaisons with the teachers' union and other civic organizations opposed to the budget cuts. And with the support of the teachers' union, we organized a rally at City Hall to challenge the budget cuts in school budgets. And uh, we were able to, for our rally, we were able to organize six other schools to participate. Now, the students at, at Hughes were all Black and Latino. And the other schools uh, were much more diverse. And for the students at Hughes, this is the first time that they had an experience working with white kids who accepted their leadership. So we go, we have our big rally, um, about 10,000 students outside City Hall, and then representatives go in to speak to the Board of Estimate. And one of the young men gets up and plays a saxophone solo for the Board of Estimate, but he doesn't say anything. So the head of the education committee says to him, you know, that was really beautiful, but why did you play that for us? And he says... The saxophone belongs to the school. If you cut the music budget, I won't be able to play anymore. This makes page three with a full page picture in Newsday. And so this becomes at the core of my teaching. How do we engage kids in political action so they feel empowered that they can make a difference in society, but also in their own lives? This is exactly what this podcast is about. Because the uh, Brown Report in 2018 said that uh, although social studies classes across the board are talking about current events issues, they are not encouraging participatory activities. Okay. this I'm actually writing a book about this with one of my uh, former students who now teaches at Alfred E. Smith in the South Bronx. And we've been looking at the state and national social studies standards. And virtually every state has in their standards that, you know, you have to be able to, to measure student understanding of what they're learning. And the way we measure student understanding is through their participation in the civic process. What we are arguing with teachers is to engage students in political action is not to go outside your job description, but it is actually to enhance it's to do what you're supposed to do. So schools are supposed to support and engage students in civic activism. This came up uh, two years ago in Long Island when many students wanted to organize walkouts around the gun violence issue. And there were school schools that would not let them. And uh, I was working with teachers in the Uniondale District. And in the March walkout, the district wouldn't permit it. And um, the participation in government teachers met with the students who then met with the superintendent and were able to convince them that they were supposed to do these things. 
So for the April rally, the entire football field was turned over to the participant government classes to organize an anti-gun violence rally. So, but the teachers and the students succeeded in convincing school and district administrators that that's what civic education is. So Pablo Muirel, my colleague and I, he also is an, he's a, his PhD from Hofstra, he's an adjunct at Hofstra, a cooperating teacher. What we're doing is we're writing a book explaining how civics activism, promoting activism, supporting activism, is actually what the social studies curriculum is supposed to be. Absolutely. That is exactly what the thrust should be, to have a, a democracy that survives. We yeah. need to have our students participating in the process on a daily basis with the work that they're doing. I'm going to shift just for a second. And... Um, I mean, you've addressed some of this, you know, in these fabulous uh, stories that you're telling us. But how would you characterize generally the state of social studies education in the U.S. today? I mean, which trends concern you the most? This trend about not participating in the civics process? Are there other trends that concern you? Um, so tell us what, what your thoughts are on that across the board nationally, what you're seeing. Okay. Well, well, first, my Ph.D. Mm -hmm. is in history. And uh, again, I studied United States history, so my main focus in the labor movement are radicals within the labor movement. And one I New York State has a history-based social studies curriculum. I consider myself a that I have a social studies approach to history. This is what, what I mean. Uh, in social studies approach to history, we use the past to understand the present. And New York State calls this the enduring issues because there are issues that come up straight across the board. And we also use the present to understand the past. So one of the things I try to do in, uh, in lesson planning is start with a, a contemporary issue and then use that to understand what happened before and then use what happened before to further understand that contemporary issue. Let, let me give you an idea. So right now, tremendous debate in the nation over abuse of presidential power and the relationship between the different branches of government. Well, Montesquieu writes about that in the European Enlightenment, about this idea. He's the, I guess, the father of this notion of separation of powers. Spirit of the laws. Yeah. So what we want to do <laughs> is if we're looking at the European Enlightenment, we want to look at... Uh, Montesquieu, we also want to look at the contemporary uh, impeachment trial. Uh, you know, we, we, we're looking at the relationship between different branches of government. Well, that helps us understand the Constitution when we're studying United States history. It helps us understand the Washington administration. In 1848, um, President James Polk goes to the House and Senate, and he argues that the United States has been invaded and American blood has been shed in American soil. And this congressional debate for the next year. And then one young congressman finally gets up, kind of, he was like six foot five and skinny and gangling. And I can just imagine jumping up and down in the back, raising his hand and screaming, show me the spot, show me the spot. So the relationship between the different branches of government is throughout U.S. history in the 1930s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt is accused of trying to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, 
So the debates that are going on in impeachment trial are debates that have gone on throughout U.S. history. So in a social studies approach, we're looking at contemporary issues at the same time we're looking at the past because one helps us to understand the other. So do you feel, and I'm going to add this question, I hadn't planned mm-hmm. on asking it, but I really like where you're going with mm-hmm. this. Do you feel that this this approach to teaching can be done at an elementary school level when the children are very young? Yes. That we don't have to wait till they're in middle school or high school because the studies are showing how the decrease of time spent on social studies can affect us in the future if our students don't know our history and can't make these connections. Like you're saying, we are. This is not the first time in our history. Now we are we are divisive, we are divided. So, can it be done at an elementary school level? Do you believe these kind of lessons? Yes. Let me give you two examples. In the community organizing agency that I was part of, we ran a daycare after school program, included kindergarten, and my uh, son attended when he was five. As their coming up ceremony. Well, their theme throughout the kindergarten year was peace activism. And for their coming up ceremony, the teacher took a book called Hiroshima no Pika. And it was about the dropping of atomic bomb. It's a picture book about the dropping of atomic bomb in Hiroshima. And the kindergarten class acted out the book as a ballet. And as the kids studied about the importance of not hurting children, they also decided that they wanted to be peace activists for trick-or-treat free UNICEF. They raised money to send to help children in war zones. But then what they did is they created a thousand paper cranes that they could send to the Hiroshima War Memorial. This is a kindergarten class. We're learning about the protecting children from war. Children like them should not get hurt. Recently, a third grade class where I, um, I know they've been in touch with the teacher through the State Council of Social Studies, they were reading in their math book, had a passage that Columbus discovered America. And they were not happy with this because uh, what they said is, one, Columbus never arrived in North America. Columbus never believed he was in America. And there were people already living here. So they felt that this passage in their math book was misleading. So they write to the publisher, and the publisher ignores them. So the teacher contacts me, and we set up a uh, petition campaign, uh, both for kids online, change.org, and with academics. And they collect signatures, and they contact academics to the State Council of Social Studies. And now, when they send all this to the publisher— they have a lot of support, and the publisher doesn't ignore them. And the publisher has agreed to change the passage in the next issue when they reissue the book. These are third graders who were able to bring about effective change. So my answer is that civic education needs to permeate every grade level because we have to develop the habit of mind of social activism So to protect democracy in American society. If kids learn to be passive, if they never engaged in change, then we have a passive society without people engaged in change. A society where half the people don't vote 
And that is a real problem. So the John Dewey approach. Yes. Experiential learning. Hands-on. From the beginning. Participation from the beginning. I love how you say that it permeates all the grade levels. Excellent. So here's another question for you. Let's talk about this move towards STEM and this move Mm -hmm. towards STEAM. Uh, Would you say that social studies education has been marginalized in favor of the teaching of English language arts, math, STEM, et cetera? And I'm going to skip to another question and ask you this, because we've spoken with a lot of people who have said, well, I am teaching social studies on the elementary school level, but I am incorporating it as an interdisciplinary, um, in an interdisciplinary fashion with other subjects. So should social studies be taught in an, in an integrative way? And if not, what do, you, uh, what do you say about this STEM approach? How do we move forward with all of this? First, I think STEM and STEAM are pretend. I don't think they're real. I think that the big issue is Common Core and Common Core aligned assessments. And I've been very involved with Long Island Opt Out on this. What happens with the Bush administration, No Child Left Behind, is the idea that every child is going to be continually tested in reading and math, and that schools and teachers and kids are all going to be evaluated based on these tests. And then, unfortunately, the Obama administration continues this with Race to the Top and uh, Every Student Shall Learn. And really, it's every student shall be tested. Well, one of the things that has happened is that instruction has been aligned with the test rather than what makes sense for students to learn, and it's been a big failure. The reason, and we know that because of the tests, student scores on Common Core line tests continually rise. But on the international uh, tests at the NAEP, they have either stagnated or declined. Well, why? Because when you teach kids for a test, they're not learning the skills they need in general. They're just learning how to get scores on those tests. And then when you give them a different test, all of a sudden, the scores decline. So what we have done to measure student progress and hold teachers accountable is we have undermined education in the United States in the last 20 years. That's Common Core and Common Core aligned testing. So I don't believe people have raised STEM and STEAM because what they're arguing is we have to prepare kids for 21st century jobs. And my response to that is I have absolutely no idea what a 21st century job looks like, and either do they. In the 1900 census, the most common job in the United States was hod carrier, H-O-D, hod carrier. No one knows what a hot carrier is. A hot carrier was a construction worker who had carried a wood frame on his back. They were all men and piled on bricks. So they carried the bricks in these wood frames on the construction sites. We don't have hot carriers anymore. Can you imagine in 1900 if they wanted to prepare people for 20th century jobs and they got everybody prepared to be hot carriers or maybe coal, handpick coal miners that disappeared by 1920? So now they say, we're going to get everybody going to be a coder. Well, they're not going to be coding jobs in the United States. One, they're already training computers to do the coding. Two, you have people in uh, India who with PhDs who are doing coding for $10,000 a year, emailing it in, 
So coding is going to largely be a very, very basic level job in the United States. So the idea that uh, through technology we're going to be providing new jobs is just a fantasy. I don't know what 21st century jobs will look like 20 years from now, but STEM definitely is not preparing them for those. We, I, I was joking before, we need to somehow to get history taught, we need to write it into STEM. So I was thinking of, of, of maybe STEAMs, adding another S, but I think the better choice would be STEM. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a Yiddishism, STEM, uh, science, history. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. So it's the common core. That That's is my, yeah. at the root of this. Yes. You really, the marginalization of social studies. The marginalization of learning. Right. Look, Look we, get, yeah, go okay. ahead. I have a twin 15 year old um, grandchildren who are now in the 10th grade. So, in ninth grade, in, in my granddaughter's high school, they don't teach social studies, they teach humanities. So, what is humanities? It's a double period of history and social, social studies in English, supposedly. But the problem is they weren't learning any social studies. So they're, read, they're doing readings, unrelated readings, where they're doing close reading of, of text, but it's basically prepared them for the ELA test. And so ninth grade, because the global region is no longer included, it wasn't being taught. One of the things that outrages me the most in the state is kids will learn about the European Holocaust in 10th grade. Because... Well, but before that, they read a book called The Book Thief. So The Book Thief is supposedly introducing them to some of the issues in the uh, Holocaust. So in The Book Thief, people are being exterminated, but it's okay because the angel of death comes to earth and gently lifts them up to heaven. Well, I have to tell you a secret. During the European Holocaust, the angel of death did not gently uh, lift people up to heaven. My great-grandfather was... Uh, on a train that the uh, Germans needed to move supplies. So they dumped them on the side of the train, his entire village, and they shot them on the side of the tracks and left their bodies there. So students, kids are not learning about the European Holocaust. They're first introduced with the angel of death lifting people gently up to heaven. And they're calling that humanities and they're not teaching history. Yes, yes, uh, definitely a concern. And there's no sense of chronology. Oh, not at I all. Find. Yes, I agree. No sense of chronology. In, in, in the, on the U.S. history regions, one of the main themes we're supposed to incorporate is cause and effect, change over time. But if you have isolated readings of text, mostly short passages which are annotating, kids have no context for which to understand it and no sense of chronology. Why, why did this lead to that. And they will lose a point if they don't give context and yeah. they can't give it. Because they don't know it. Because they don't know it and it's not being it's not being taught from a very young age, the chronology. I think as teachers, we have a fundamental uh, responsibility to prepare our students to fight for a more just world to fight for a world where people can live in decency with ex expectation for their future in the United States, but also around the rest of the world. So I think that the crises that the world faces are the same as the crises that social studies teachers face. And we're on the front lines in building a decent future for our students. 
So grateful to Dr. Alan Singer, Director of the Secondary Education Program at Hofstra University on Long Island, for speaking with us here on Civics is Dead. His passion, his dedication, and real-life insights and solutions to the marginalization of social studies and civics education offers us hope that social studies education in America will be revitalized and prioritized. Join us on our next episode, where we continue our deep dive with Boots on the Ground educators when we speak candidly with Rachel Murat, the 2020 New York State Teacher of the Year. Be sure to subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Follow us also on Twitter at Civics is Dead and visit wcwp.org slash civics is dead. I wish you a beautiful day and great peace in your life.